Hey, good morning, students. I uh, hope you have had a great week. Um, I'm excited that we get to spend more time together studying God's Word. I hope you have your Bibles. If you do, go ahead and find Galatians chapter 4. Uh, we're going to start in verse 21. So Galatians 4, verse 21, and we'll study this morning through the end of the chapter. Uh, last week, we started Galatians 4, and we, uh, we learned from Paul, uh, his big idea was that those who are in Christ are no longer slaves, right? They are free in Christ. Uh, they are not only freed, uh, but they are now sons. They've been adopted into the family of God. And they're not only sons, but because they are uh, the sons of God, they are now heirs. They get to inherit uh, the kingdom, his blessings, his promise, all of those things. Uh, we are, as Christians, the true sons of Abraham, according to Paul. And, and we ought to imitate Paul in living out our freedom rather than living in slavery to sin and the law. This has been Paul's argument for weeks now. Um, so rather than surrender their freedom to the Judaizers who are promoting circumcision and following the law of Moses, uh, Paul says that they should uh, take up their freedom in Christ and live out the gospel. Uh, so this week, Paul's going to finish up his, his theological argument for why the churches in Galatia should listen to him rather than the false teachers from Jerusalem, these Judaizers. If you remember, uh, thinking about the broad outline of the book of Galatians, you can really, uh, you can really narrow it down to three big chunks. Chapters 1 and 2 talk about uh, Paul's authority uh, as an apostle and how he should be listened to by the Galatian churches because he's an apostle. He has authority from God to deliver this gospel message. And the gospel that he received, remember, he didn't receive from man. Uh, he actually received it directly from the risen Lord Jesus. So that's chapters 1 and 2 that, that Paul kind of uh, develops and grounds his authority. Chapters 3 and 4, where we've been for the last few weeks, is really Paul's theological argument, his explanation for why it is that his gospel is the true gospel and why the, the Judaizers' teachings is a false gospel. One is based on righteousness through faith in, uh, in God, and, and one is based on righteousness through works in our obedience to the law. And one of these things can never save, right? Our obedience to the law will never be good enough, but faith in God's promise, that's what leads to salvation. So for the last few chapters, he's been doing a theological overview, a theological argument rather, for his gospel. And then that will lead us into chapters five and six, which are these kind of ethical or practical implications of the gospel. So uh, once Paul establishes authority, and then he tells you the gospel, he tells you what is true about his message, what is true about his gospel, then we apply it in chapters five and six. How, how then should we live as Christians? So we're going to kind of transition into that ethical or application standpoint uh, today. Uh, but but for, for the bulk of our time, Paul's going to be wrapping up his defense of the gospel, and he does it brilliantly. It's actually a really interesting text. It's, it's a difficult text, but I think we can get through it together. Remember, he's arguing that the gospel he preached to the Galatians is the true gospel. So he's promoting his gospel as true and, and all of the other gospels as false. That Paul's gospel is the same faith that, that existed in the time of Abraham when Abraham had faith in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Way before the law of Moses, Abraham had faith, and that's what saved him. 
And the way that Paul's going to defend this is through the story of Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, and their two sons. So let's, let's read what's going on. We're actually going to read the whole section this morning. So start in verse 21 of Galatians chapter 4. Paul writes, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as, that, as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Let's pray before we go any further. Oh, Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you that we can hear from you when we read the scriptures. And Lord, we confess, I'm sure many of us, after we read this passage, we were scratching our heads. This is a, a difficult text. It's hard to make sense of, of what's going on. So Lord, I pray by the power of your spirit, you would help us to see your truth, to understand your word, to be able to apply that word to our own lives, to, to be transformed by it. God, help us to remember that we are the true sons of Abraham through faith, that we come into your blessing by faith alone, that it's not through our works, that we were not enslaved anymore, that we are free. God, help us to, to understand these things, to, to make them, uh, to, to really believe them and to live as though they really are true in each of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, notice in verse 21, uh, that Paul almost seems to challenge these churches in Galatia. He says, uh, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And so what's, his, what's he doing here? He, he's, he's saying, you want to live under the law. You want to believe what the Judaizers are saying and put yourself under the law of Moses. Do you even know what the law says? Like, do you even know what that means? The idea that we've seen over and over again is this, that the law what God gave to Israel through angels and then to Moses, this law, was never meant to replace the promise of Abraham. It was never meant to be a new way of salvation. It was supposed to be a way that they could respond in that faith that they had in God. But the problem is that it's been, it's been twisted. This law has been now used as somehow a means to salvation, but we know that it will never ever save. Our works cannot lead to our salvation. And, and the very law itself reveals that. It was never meant to be used as a means for redemption. So the, the first point we're going to make uh, about what 
Paul is about to argue is, the, is this historical situation, this historical event. So I'm, I'm getting these points from a guy named Phil Riken. He wrote a great commentary on uh, the book of Galatians, and he says it better than I could come up with. So we're going to attribute this to him, these, these three points we'll talk about. So the first, if you're taking notes, is the historical situation. The historical situation. In verses 21 through 23, we're going to kind of get an understanding of, of what's going on in Genesis with Abraham and Sarah, Hagar, Isaac, and Ishmael. So uh, the first point is the historical situation. So what's going on in verse 22? It's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. So if you're not familiar with the, the text in Genesis, we'll just give you an overview. There, there's a man named Abram. Uh, he was a Gentile. He was from Ur of the Chaldeans, a, a place in the, the Near East. And God called him. He chose him and said, Abram, I want you and your family to, to follow my lead. I want you to go take your family and move away from your home and go to where I will tell you. And he ends up landing in Canaan, which is the, the promised land. But he makes, God makes a covenant with Abram and promises to bless him with a son. Uh, and we know that that son ultimately is, is Isaac. But Abram and his wife, Sarai, uh, they were both very old. Uh, most scholars would say they were pushing their 80s. They were in their, their mid to late 80s. And so Sarai, his wife, was clearly barren. She's not possibly able to have children. So this idea that Abram and Sarai would have a son seemed to be impossible, but God promised it anyway. Uh, you read that text and you'll see that both Abram and Sarai both laugh at God's promise. They, they don't believe it. They, they say, how can these things be? This is ridiculous, right? So Sarai and Abram come up with an idea uh, for them to actually enjoy a son. They say uh, that they're going to bring in Hagar, a, a slave woman uh, in Abram's family, uh, that, that through Hagar, uh, they would have a son. So Abram uh, had a son through Hagar, and they named him Ishmael. God, however, does not go back on his word. And the promise that God gave was that Abram and Sarai would have a son. He told them that it would be through Sarai, not through Hagar. So he changed, God changed Sarai's name to Sarah, and ultimately changed Abram's name to Abraham, which means father of many. And sure enough, uh, eventually Sarah became pregnant and Abram, Abraham and Sarah had a son named Isaac. So Paul is, is reaching back to the book of Genesis to tell this story and say, hey, remember the story of, of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, right? Through uh, Hagar, they had Ishmael and through Sarah, they had Isaac. But Ishmael's birth, the, the, the way that Ishmael was born was the result of Abraham and Sarah taking matters into their own hands. They weren't believing God's promise. They weren't living by faith. They were doing what they could come up with to somehow uh, make things work. So this is what Paul means in verse 23 when he says that the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, right? Ishmael, Hagar's son, the slave woman's son, was born according to the flesh. He was born according to uh, what the, these sinful human beings could come up with. But the promise of God would require faith in God to do the impossible. The, the promise wasn't towards Abraham and Hagar. It was to Abraham and Sarah. So here, the slave woman and her son, Ishmael, are connected to the flesh, 
and the free woman, Sarah, and her son, Isaac, are connected to the promise. So we have this contrast starting to be formed, right? We have the slave woman, her son, and doing things according to the flesh. We have the free woman, her son, and doing things according to the promise, or as verse 29 says, by the spirit. Paul's going to use those terms kind of interchangeably. So Paul's setting up this argument seen clearly in the story of these two women and their sons. Phil Riken, the same guy that I mentioned earlier, he says it like this. He says, Ishmael and Isaac represent two entirely different approaches to religion or following God. There's law against grace, flesh against spirit, self-reliance against divine dependence. Paul is creating this contrast between the flesh and the promise, slave woman and free woman, slavery and freedom, faithfulness and faithfulness and unfaithfulness, Hagar and Sarah. That's the historical situation. That's what's going on in this historical narrative, this story. But it's not enough to just get what the story is, right? It's not enough for, just, for us to just understand what the story says. Paul is about to teach what the story is means. And this is incredibly important to how you and I learn from God's word. How is it that we study the scriptures? It is good. It is really helpful that we understand what this book says. It's really good that you and I would become familiar with the stories of scripture, the historical narrative that takes place, the prophecies that are given by prophets, the the gospel stories of Jesus among his disciples, the, the, the stories of Paul or other New Testament authors writing to the churches, the occasions for which they were writing these letters. It's important that we would know what the text says, right? We, we need to be familiar with what it says, but that's not the only thing we do. When we go to study the Bible, we don't just learn what the text says. We need to try and understand what does the text mean? Now, We believe that Abraham, Hagar, Sarah, Ishmael, Isaac, this was a historical narrative. This really happened. There really was a person named Abraham who really had a wife named Sarah and a slave named Hagar. So we're not saying that this is is unhistorical, that it doesn't matter if it's historical or not. We believe that these things really happened. But there are things happening kind of above that story that we need to understand for our own sakes as believers for what does the text really mean? mean. And Paul's going to give us an example of how to do that in our next section. So if you're taking notes, the first point was the historical situation. The second point is going to be an allegorical interpretation. So I'm just going to say that again. The second point is an allegorical interpretation. We see this in verses 24 through 27. Paul starts off in verse 24 by saying this, that is the story of Abraham Sarah and Hagar, this may be interpreted allegorically. Now, what does that mean? Like, what does the word allegory mean? What does allegorical mean? And I think there are some options to how we should understand this, because in Paul's day, this was a pretty technical term. And so we need to understand kind of what all is going on. I want to argue that Paul is using a mixture of two kinds of devices uh, for how we ought to interpret this text. The first, the, actually the majority of what this, uh, what this argument is and what Paul is doing is what's called typology. And I'll explain that in just a bit. Uh, but he's also using a little bit of allegory. So typology and allegory. 
All of this is under the idea of the allegorical interpretation. So Paul is using allegory to teach this story. So uh, he's using typology as well. So, So what is typology? Typology is making links and connections and comparisons between people or things or themes in the Bible. Okay, so so typology is making connections between different people or different things or different themes all through Scripture. And usually, usually it's through making connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You have multiple kinds of what we call types that are all pointing forward to what we call the anti-type or the fulfillment of the types, kind of the, the ideal type. So, so let's just give you a, a, a basic example. And, and you would know this, I think. So you think about the Old Testament, you think about the idea of a lamb, okay? So think about a lamb as it relates to the Old Testament. Where do you see lambs come up? Well, you see a lamb come up in the book of Exodus, right? The Passover. What, does the, what do the Israelites have to do? They have to slaughter a lamb and they have to paint the blood on the doorposts of their homes because the sacrifice of the lamb covers their sins, right? The Lord passes over his judgment through the lamb, through the blood of the lamb, right? So that's, that's one type, okay? Later on, when we get the law, we see throughout the Old Testament that lambs are used as sacrifices. And so in the same way uh, that, that they used a lamb in Passover, they regularly would sacrifice lambs to make atonement for their sins, right? But Hebrews tells us in the New Testament that the blood of lambs does not really ultimately cover the sins of men. So what happens? We get this type of lambs and sacrifices in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, Jesus comes and John calls Jesus, John the Baptist calls Jesus what? He says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the antitype of this typology of lambs and sacrifices. Does that make sense? So in the Old Testament, we start to see these pictures that are building on one another that ultimately get fulfilled in the New Testament. There are types and antitypes all over the Bible. I mean, the Bible is full of these connections that you can make between different people, different things, different themes. It's all over the place. So Paul is going to make a connection. He's going to use typology in this story to make connections between the characters in the story and the covenants that we as uh, human beings are going to run toward. We're either going to go toward a covenant of works that somehow through our works we can be righteous or a covenant of grace that's through faith alone that we can receive salvation. So he's using typology to, to show that, but he's also using a little bit of allegory. Now, what's an allegory? Now, let me explain that a little bit. An allegory is something, it's a story that is used to explain something other than the story itself. I'm going to say that again. An allegory is a story that is used to explain something other than the actual story itself. So think of uh, Jesus giving the parable of the sower, 
right? He says a, a sower goes out and scatters seed among the ground and there's different kinds of ground and the, the ground does different things with the seed. Some of it grows and gets choked out. Some of it withers and dies. Some of it gets taken up by the birds of the air, but some of it finds good soil and it grows 30, 60, 100 fold. Now, Jesus is telling a story about a man sowing seed, but is the point of Jesus' story about a man sowing seed? No. The point of Jesus' story is sharing the gospel, right? Jesus is using this story to communicate a larger truth. That's allegory. So you think about Pilgrim's Progress, right? It's a good example of an allegory that all of these characters are doing things in and of themselves, but what it means is something much greater than the story itself. That's allegory. Another example of allegory would be uh, Nathan, uh, David's friend from First uh, and Second Samuel, uh, that he tells the story after uh, David commits adultery with Bathsheba. Nathan tells the story of the rich man stealing a lamb from the poorer man. Uh, and he says, David, you are the man. Like you're the one who did this awful deed. So Nathan's point wasn't to tell a story to David. David's, uh, Nathan's point rather was to communicate the truth of his sin to David. That's, that's allegory. Now, both of those stories were not told to necessarily give historical information, right? So, like I said, Jesus' point is not to tell you about a sower and some seed. His point is to tell you about how sharing the gospel is going to work. So, once we see in this text that Paul is using mostly typology with a little bit of allegory mixed in, it will make a lot of sense. It will make a lot more sense. Because let's be clear, this is a difficult passage. There's a lot of things that are, there are a lot of connections that we're making. It's difficult. So Paul says the two women, Sarah and Hagar, are going to represent two covenants. Now, one woman is from Mount Sinai. One covenant is from Mount Sinai. And that leads to slavery. This is Hagar. Okay, so let's make the connection. Hagar corresponds to the present Jerusalem, Paul says, because she is in slavery. So Hagar, the slave woman under Abraham, bore a son through the flesh, through their own works that sinful humanity had come up to do on their own. And where did that lead? Think about what was the ultimate uh, product of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar taking matters into their own hands. They had Ishmael, and Ishmael was born a slave. It doesn't matter that Abraham was Ishmael's father. Because Hagar was a slave, Ishmael was a slave. He was born into slavery. And likewise, the Judaizers from Jerusalem, those who were trying to get the uh, Galatian Christians to become Jews before they would come become Christians, they think that because they are Jews, because they are physical descendants of Abraham, that they are legitimate sons of Abraham. But here's Paul's point. Ishmael was a son of Abraham, but he was illegitimate. He was not the legitimate son. He was not the son of the promise. Just like Hagar and Ishmael, the Jews in Jerusalem and these Judaizers, their status is not free. They are enslaved. They are running towards a covenant of works, something that they will never be able to do. They are illegitimate sons who continue in slavery. 
So what does that mean for us today? We think about this, this one pathway of Hagar and working according to the flesh and finding ourselves in slavery. For us, it means that if someone is trying to live by their works, if someone is trying to be justified by their obedience to the law, then they are living in slavery. They may have an association with the one that the one God who promises to bless, but they are not enjoying those blessings. So students, hear me. If you are trying to live your life by doing good works so that you might somehow attain or achieve or earn right standing with God, a right relationship with God, you are living in slavery. And that's not what God intends for you. That's not what God wants for your life. He desires all to be saved, to come to a knowledge of him. But Paul continues with the other woman. So that's not the only way we can go. We don't have to go to uh, slavery through the works according to the flesh. Now look at verse 26. He says, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. Notice Sarah, the, the free woman, is referred to as the Jerusalem above. So Hagar is the present Jerusalem, this kind of earthly Jerusalem. But Sarah, the free woman, is the Jerusalem above, heavenly Jerusalem. She is free. And Paul says, she is our mother. Paul is saying that the hope of a Christian is in heaven, a heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above. It's this future hope that's already broken into the present because you and I as believers now have new life in Christ. We have a new home in heaven. The heavenly Jerusalem is what we read about in Revelation 21, a place where there's going to be no sin, no sickness, no tears, no pain, no suffering, no slavery, but blessing and freedom. So notice the contrast. In Hagar and Ishmael, we have a slave woman bearing slave children, living according to the flesh, represented by the present Jerusalem. But in Sarah and Isaac, we have a free woman bearing free children, living through the promise and the spirit represented by the Jerusalem above. And this huge contrast, these, these huge types that Paul is showing you and me in the churches in Galatia, leads Paul to exclaim a quote from Isaiah 54. Let's read it again in verse 27. He says, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, if we're thinking back about the story that Paul used, the story of Abraham, Hagar, and Sarah, Isaiah seems to be talking about Sarah, right? I mean, she was barren. She didn't have any children. It didn't seem like she was going to have any children. But the promise came that through her, there would be a multitude, that there would be so many that would come from her line, that it would be more than, than a, a normal person who had, a normal woman rather, who had a husband. It seems like Isaiah is talking about Sarah. She was the barren wife of the uh, and, and who became the mother of a nation. But Isaiah is actually prophesying here about Jerusalem. In Isaiah's day, uh, Jerusalem was going into exile. But because of their disobedience to God, he was scattering them around the world. But Isaiah was prophesying that this exile 
would not be forever, that actually God would gather up his children to a new Jerusalem. Phil Riken, he says it best. So I'm just going to read a quote from him. He says, when Isaiah prophesied about the barren woman, he was not thinking primarily of Sarah, but of the city of Jerusalem. The Jerusalem of his day was barren because her children had been carried away into exile. But Isaiah promised that one day God would establish a new Jerusalem, which would be filled with far more children than the old Jerusalem could ever contain. Isaiah's happy promise, get this, is being fulfilled at this very moment. Not in an earthly city, but in a spiritual one that spreads across the globe as men, women, and children come to faith in Jesus Christ, they become citizens of the new Jerusalem to the praise and glory of God. So as the gospel goes out and sinners like you and me respond in faith, when we place our faith in Jesus, he saves us, he redeems us, God the Father adopts us, the Spirit indwells us. We know all of these wonderful truths, but also we receive a new citizenship. Our citizenship is now in heaven. We are no longer primarily of this world. We now have a home in heaven. And so the the promise, the prophecy that Isaiah makes here, that the barren one, Jerusalem, who is in exile, God's city that was barren, is one day going to be filled to the brim uh, far beyond anything they could have imagined. And that's because uh, the people of God is not just one ethnicity. It's not just one people group, but it's people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue all gathering together to be the people of God. So as we move to our final point this morning, let's let's use this as an opportunity to, to kind of refresh our wonder for the Word of God. We need to think about how incredible the Bible really is. That This book, 66 books that make up the Scripture, is one story with one divine author over thousands of years. There are so many things for you and me to find and to learn and to see. So maybe the next time you go to study the Bible, so maybe the next time in your Bible reading plan or whatever it is that you're doing for your quiet times, your devotions, if you go to read the scriptures, you read a chapter of a text, maybe ask yourself and search for any typology. Right? Think about it. if you're reading about uh, the Garden of Eden, or you're thinking about the temple, or you're thinking about the priesthood, or you're thinking about uh, sacrifices, uh, all of these things and so many more. When you stumble upon those kinds of things, ask yourself, where else do I see this in the Bible? And is there a, is there a trajectory? Is something happening here that's going to be happening in a greater way later? Or if you're in the New Testament, is there something happening in the New Testament that was kind of previewed or shown as a glimpse in the Old Testament. Our, um, our understanding of the Bible will get so much deeper and so much richer if we'll start to learn how to put the Scriptures together. Our text this morning is just one great example of how we can do that. Well, finally, uh, we're going to go to the third section of this text. So if you're taking notes, we've had the historical situation. Uh, so what is happening in the book of Genesis with the story of Abraham? Second, we saw the allegorical interpretation that 
that these two women and their sons represent these two ways of life, these two covenants, that one is slavery and one is freedom. And now that we've understood those two things, let's finally land on the practical application. So if you're taking notes, that's the third point this morning, the practical application. Paul wants the churches in Galatia not just to understand this information. He doesn't just want them to say, oh, I get it, I understand. No, he wants, us, he wants the churches and us to take this information and apply it. Basically, the question is, so what? Why does that matter to me? How should that matter to us that there are these two ways to live? So he says to them in verse 28, you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. How encouraging is this? Paul goes to these churches who have been inundated with false gospels, false teaching, these Judaizers coming in. And he says, you brothers, like Isaac, are the children of promise. Paul tells the believers that it is they, not the Judaizers, who are actually the legitimate sons of Abraham. This is wonderful news and and hopefully a relief to these Galatian Christians. But then he continues. He says that just like the original son of the flesh persecuted the son born according to the spirit, so it is now. Now, what does this mean? Let's go back to Abraham's story. In Genesis chapter 21, we get the story of of Ishmael and Isaac growing up. And in verse 9, we get a really strong indication that Ishmael held Isaac in contempt, that Ishmael actually wanted to harm or even destroy Isaac. Now, there are plenty of reasons for why this could be the case, right? He's a slave. Isaac is free. Uh, Ishmael is the, technically he's the firstborn son, right? He should receive the inheritance and the rights, but because he was born according to the flesh, because he was born a slave, uh, he was passed over those things for Isaac. And so Ishmael held Isaac in contempt and began to persecute Isaac. In the same way, the ones among the Galatian Christians who are living according to the flesh, these Judaizers who are trying to make their life and their salvation through the law are persecuting the ones who are born according to the promise, or as he says in verse 29, by the Spirit. Paul uses this idea to communicate something massive. Paul is saying that the Judaizers who are trying to get the Gentile believers to be circumcised, to recognize the festivals and holidays, to follow the law of Moses, those Judaizers are persecuting the Christians. It's like Ishmael persecuting Isaac. This is an incredibly stinging rebuke against these Judaizers who would have totally assumed that they, like Isaac, are the true sons of Abraham. But Paul says, no, they are the illegitimate sons. And just like Ishmael persecuted the legitimate son, they are now persecuting you, churches. So what should they do? Paul says in verse 30 and gives them a really practical implication of what they ought to do. It says, what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. In other words, Paul is telling the churches, cast them out. Get these false teachers away from you. Don't listen to what they have to say. The church has no place for false teachers and false gospels. Students, legalism, 
The idea that we could somehow earn our place through our works, that our works are tied up to our righteousness is not compatible with the true gospel of Jesus Christ. It has no place in the church. So if we want to grow as a body of believers, if we want to grow as a church, if we want to grow as brothers and sisters together as the family of God, then we cannot base our salvation on how good we've been. We can't base our standing on how well we've obeyed. Now, to be sure, you and I as Christians are called over and over again to holiness. We're called to imitate Christ. We're called to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. And we must hold one another accountable to the word and its good commands. But our salvation is not based on what we do. Our salvation is not based on how well we've done today. Our salvation is based on what Christ has done. Our salvation is all of grace. So Paul reminds them this once again in verse 31. He says, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, right? Your your birth did not come to pass because of works of the flesh. Your life didn't come to you through the law or through the flesh or through works. No, your life came through promise. Your life came through the Spirit. We are not children of the slave. We are children of the free woman. Students, if you are in Christ, Jesus has atoned for your sins. He has lived a perfect life on your behalf. He took the wrath of God in your place. There is no work left for you to accomplish. Why? Because a miracle has happened. Your life didn't come through work. Your sinful, cold, dead heart was brought to life by the God of the universe. Like Isaac's miraculous physical birth from Abraham and Sarah, you have experienced a miraculous spiritual birth. So don't forget it. As you go along your way as a Christian, growing in faithfulness, growing in holiness, don't forget how you got here. Remember, this is Paul's, the beginning of Paul's argument way back in Galatians chapter 3. He says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Are you continuing in the flesh what was begun by the Spirit? And now here at the end of chapter 4, Paul is putting a bow on his theological argument. You are the children of the free woman. You are the legitimate children in Abraham's family. You are the recipients of the blessings of God. Your home is not on this earth. It's in heaven. But you and I as Christians get to enjoy a taste of home when we're together as a family. So I pray that you would take this, that you would remember who you are in Christ, and that you would live out your life in faith rather than in slavery. Let's pray together. Oh God in heaven, we are so thankful, so thankful that we are children according to the promise. God, help us to to root out and to put to death all of the desires in our hearts that would bend us back towards slavery. That this, this temperament that we have to run towards the works of the law for our own status, God, help us to put those things away and instead to rest in your finished work through your life, 
your crucifixion, your death, your resurrection, your ascension. God, it's through your work in Christ that we have life. Like Isaac, we are now the sons of the promise. We are now sons and daughters of Abraham. We are now recipients of your promise and your blessing. Help us to live in light of who we really are in Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.